belief and unbelief among the Jews. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Thank you. Oh, hi. Hey, my name's Scott. I'm one of the ministers here. Super nice to be in church with you. If you could keep your Bibles open to John's Gospel that uh, Karen just read for us, that would be great. And uh, I'm going to pray very quickly for us, and then we'll get right underway. Heavenly Father, you're great. We need your help as we consider your word, that we might see your Son, the Lord Jesus, within it, and that we might believe in him. Amen. I reckon uh, lots of you would have played the game called Taboo or Articulate, one of those games where you get a word on a card and you, you've got to describe that word without using that word or a number of other words that are listed on that card until your team guesses it. For example, this is the card for the word whistle. You've got to try and get your team members to guess the word whistle without using the word whistle or those other words. Now, we were playing this game with some um, friends and it was... Family versus family, it was our family's turn and my youngest lad, who was aged 10 at the time, nervously pulled out the card and it had the word alcohol on the top. I didn't see the words below, but I guess that was something like beer, wine, spirits, drunk, whatever. And you were thinking, everyone was thinking, what's the 10-year-old minister's kid going to say under pressure in front of everyone else? How long would it take? 
right away he says booze. And I guessed alcohol at once. And we kind of moved on to the next word, but everyone else was laughing at us at the time. I don't know where he got it from, to be honest with you. But he does watch a lot of YouTube videos. <laughs> now, just to assure you, uh, I'm not a teetotaler, but hand on heart, I don't have a problem with alcohol. And I'm just going to leave it there before you think I protest too much. Now, here's my question for you today, though. How would you describe the word belief? as in Christian belief, belief in Jesus. I, I wonder what you talked about in the break then. What is belief? Especially if the words like trust, faith, confidence and conviction were other words that you weren't allowed to use. I actually think we'd find it a bit difficult. And that seems to me to be a problem, especially because in John's Gospel, belief is like the key action point. It's the key application point. If you go to the purpose statement of the book at the very end, chapter 20, verse 31, this is what it says. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let me get this right. The whole book of John is written in order that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that through that belief we might have life in his name. So what does it mean to believe? And you go, I don't know. It's really hard to describe. So today I want to look at what belief is. I want to think through what are the kind of signs or indicators of belief and what we are to do when we're struggling with unbelief. And I want to do that springboarding out of the text from John 12 that was just read to us by Karen. Um, so I hope you have that open in front of you. That section that Karen read to us formally closes the first half of John's Gospel, what's sometimes called the Book of Signs, it marks the end of Jesus' public ministry before the book narrows into Jesus' last night with his disciples, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his triumphant resurrection. So today, what is belief? How do you know when you believe? What do you do when you're struggling with unbelief? And so firstly for us this morning, what is belief? And I think I'd actually like to describe belief in terms of belief is more than dot, dot, dot. For example, belief is more than intellectual agreement or assent. In other words, it's more than mere head knowledge. It can't just be reduced to the raw data. You know, the historical information concerning uh, a set of facts about his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. It's about more than the evidence. Now, can I say at this point that it, it's not about less than the evidence? In other words, belief in Jesus, it's not a figment of ancient imagination. It's not a convenient story that's been made up in order to suit the church so that we can wield power over the masses. You will be aware that when you hold the Bible in your hands, you have not one but four biographies of the life of Jesus based upon eyewitness testimony, all of which date within a matter of a few decades from those events having taken place. Now, having just one of those biographies would be an historical marvel because you just don't get ancient documents dated so close to the events which took place. But to have four of them, well, my friends, that is a phenomenon. So when I say belief in Jesus is more than intellectual agreement based upon historical data, I'm not saying there's no evidence or that the evidence is unimportant. What I am saying is that intellectually acknowledging the evidence is not the same as belief in the person of Jesus. There was a um, college student in the States who was asked to present a, um, a lesson on the law of the swinging pendulum which states that a pendulum can never return higher 
than the point from which it was released. Because of friction and gravity, the pendulum always returns short of its original release point, each time making less and less of an arc until it finally rests at that point of equilibrium. And so the student demonstrated this law with a string attached to a kid's toy secured to the top of the blackboard and it did its thing and everyone said they believed in the law of equilibrium excellent i mean the law of the pendulum excellent but she was very sneaky you see because she had set up a 100 kilo weight to the steel beam in the middle of the room and then she got the teacher to sit on a chair in the middle and she brought the weight up to his nose and she said if this law of the pendulum is true then when i release this massive metal it's going to swing across the room but it will return short of the release point, which means your nose will not be in danger. And beads of sweat broke out on his forehead, and she said, do you believe in this law of the pendulum? And he murmured, yes. But just after the far end of its swing, when it you know, pauses momentarily before swinging back, the teacher dived under the table. Well, of course he did, because he didn't really believe. It is about more than intellectual agreement. It's funny when we look at this section of John's Gospel because we find that there's not even intellectual agreement based upon the evidence. Have a look in verse 37 with me. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. How extraordinary. By this stage of John's Gospel, after Jesus had changed water into wine, after he had healed an official son who was close to death, after he had given limbs to a long-term paralytic man after he had fed 5,000 people, more than 5,000 people with just a few fishes and loaves of bread, after he had given sight to a man born blind, after he had even raised Lazarus from the dead, they would still not believe in him. So you see, belief in Jesus has got to be about more than the evidence because there's no problem with the evidence. Secondly, we see that Belief is more than private admiration. There's no such thing as a secret disciple of Christ. It's personal, yes, but it's not private. And for it to be personal but not private, that's going to require courage and humility. Now, I think if you look at verse 42, it's a heartening thing because it reveals that though the vast majority of Jews did not believe in Jesus despite the evidence, some did. Even some among the Jewish leaders who seem the most hardened towards Jesus appear to believe in him. Now, I guess that might include Nicodemus. Uh, You might remember he was a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He approached Jesus at night, way back in John chapter 3. I guess it also includes Joseph of Arimathea, another member of the council. He, He went and asked for Jesus' body after he was crucified in order to bury it. And and surely it would have included others. And that's a very heartening thing. And yet John, the author of this gospel, qualifies that encouragement in verse 42. I'd love you to read this verse with me. Verse 42. Many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith. For fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. You see, the faith of the leaders, very encouraging in some respects, but John suggests it's inadequate because it's private. They would not openly acknowledge their faith in Jesus. They were afraid and they needed courage. I guess they were also proud 
and needed humility because they so loved the praise of men rather than praise from God. Friends, I wonder if that describes your faith this morning. I fear it's reminiscent of mine when I wuss out on opportunities to be more open, to be more public, to be more courageous in my belief that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who brings life. A believer is more than a secret admirer, and belief is more than private admiration, and that will require both courage and humility. Thirdly this morning, belief is more than your personal decision or personal choice. Even the decision to believe in Jesus falls within God's sovereignty and require his, requires his initiative. And you see that in a, in a reverse kind of way here in John 12, where John quotes Isaiah 6. You'll see it there. God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they cannot see they cannot understand effectively so they cannot believe. We read that, we find that quite troubling if we're honest. It's an inescapable problem of the reading today. I mean, it sounds like he's talking about predestination, but not in the good sense we normally think of it. In the very worst sense, where people are predestined not to believe, they're prevented from belief as it were. So I need to say a few things about this. Firstly, specifically about the people who are in question in this passage, the Jews who had been presented with an abundance of evidence and reason for believing that Jesus is the Christ, sent from God to be their saviour, and who have insisted upon unbelief. Because that's their situation. I think what we've got going on here is something called judicial hardening. Okay, stay with me here. It's not the bankrupt actions of a mean-spirited or capricious God who has turned otherwise morally pure people who really wanted to believe into hard-hearted resistors. With something like judicial hardening, you have God giving a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do what they themselves have already chosen. Now, I'm not sure he always works in this way, but I think this is what's happening with Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. It happened with the people of Israel in Isaiah's day, and it's happening here with the Jews in John's gospel. And yet even in this chapter, there is a tension, right? There's a balance in which God's sovereignty is never pitted against human responsibility. So you have a look at verse 37. It assumes people are responsible for their, their own response of unbelief. Uh, verse 43, as we've seen, it indicates human responsibility for their unbelief. The Jews preferred the praise of men rather than the praise of God. And pleasingly, I think, even amidst such unbelief, there are also signs of belief. And if you are tempted to just write God off or throw your hands up to some kind of bleak fatalism where you think God's going to do whatever God's going to do regardless of what I do, I want you to look at verse 44 very carefully with me. Okay, I want you to read it with me. Where it says, verse 44, then Jesus made an oblique reference to the salvation he offers. Did you see that? Where it says, then Jesus just slipped in something about the life he brings while they were talking about the weather in general and surf conditions in particular. Do you notice that? Where it says Jesus didn't really mind what you decide as long as you had enough data to make an informed decision. Is that what verse 44 says? No. Where it says, Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me, 
does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. In other words, you see me, you see God. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Do you know, it sounds to me like he thinks we are responsible for our own choices. And it sounds like he is rather keen that we respond to him with belief. In the Bible, it is true that our faith requires God's sovereign election. That is, we need him to make the first move. How could we naturally choose him when we naturally enjoy sin so much? And where we naturally worship ourselves and everything other than him. So in salvation, of course we need him to make the first move. And on the flip side, God's sovereignty is not breached even in the hardest of human hearts. And yet we're all held responsible for our own belief. All of us have got dear friends and family members who do not believe in Jesus. That unbelief pains each of us. And the temptation for us is to either blame God or to feel very burdened with responsibility for others. The truth is we're not responsible for others' reactions to Jesus. We're responsible for our own and what we do with the opportunities given to us to pray and to witness to those around us. And I think we really have to leave the rest to God, the sovereign one who knows all things, who knows how these very complicated things can fit together, and moreover, who, who moves in compassion and initiative towards us creatures he has made. Friends, belief is more than a personal decision. God is not excluded from the response that we make to his claims, and yet we are still responsible. And so those are just three things about belief that we see in today's passage, the passage we're considering today. And I'm sure there are many other things that you could say. But I think at this stage, we probably need to land on some kind of working definitions for belief beyond what you'd come up with in the spur of the moment when playing taboo. So how about this? Belief is, well, it yields allegiance to Jesus. It accepts his claims it dedicates one's life to following him. In other words, it's about loyalty. It's about acceptance of his claims. It's about personal devotion to him at ground level. Uh, ben put me onto this during the week. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I mean, isn't he the gift that keeps giving? Amazing. He said this about belief or faith. Uh, this is worth writing down, I reckon. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has accepted in spite of your changing moods. Isn't that good? Very helpful. Maybe a picture will help. A few weeks ago, uh, Nathan introduced to us, he told us a story uh, about a missionary called John Payton from Scotland. I think he got in trouble for his pronunciation of it, but anyway. He took the good news about Jesus to the New Hebrides, or what we know as Vanuatu, at a time when it contained some hostile cannibals. Now, one day Payton was in his home, and he was working on this translation of John's Gospel. And uh, he was sitting at his desk. I don't think he had a laptop. And he was puzzling over how to translate this word, belief or trust, in John's Gospel, which occurs so frequently in this book. Because there was no word for trust in their native language of Bislama. And then his, um, his native servant came in and Peyton asked him, he said, what am I doing? And the man said, well, John, you're sitting at your desk. 
And then Peyton raised both legs off the floor, the front legs off the floor, like this cool cat is. And like we used to do in school and get in trouble when we did that. And he said, what am I doing now? And his servant in reply used a verb which means to lean your whole weight upon. To lean your whole weight upon. And that's the phrase that Peyton used to translate the word believe. To lean your whole weight upon. Our present circumstances, our future circumstances, our eternal destiny, the penalty our shortcomings deserve, our complete inadequacy as creatures made in the image of God are weighty things. And we can lean their whole weight upon Jesus, our Saviour and our Lord. He can bear it because he's nothing short of being God. Because of his perfect life, he lived among us. And because of his sacrificial death, he died for us. Because of his triumphant resurrection from the dead. And because he now rules in the heavenly realms. Friends, we can lean our whole weight upon him. And I think that is a great picture of what belief means. Now you might think to yourself, this is all useful information. But I've been thinking about what you've said, Scott. And uh, my question is... How do I know if I believe? Like, what are the signs that I believe? Because if belief is more than intellectual agreement, if it's more than private admiration, if it's more than just my personal choice, it's not going to be as easy to detect as ticking a box. And you do sort of need to build a picture that indicates belief. You know, you've got to think through what are the signs that indicate belief. Clearly, there needs to be an acceptance in your mind of who he says he is. If you don't agree that he's sent from God, that he is God in the flesh, that he actually lived on earth, that he really died on the cross, that he factually rose from the dead in bodily form, there are problems with your belief. It might be growing at this stage, but it's still inadequate for now. Can I humbly say to you, just keep learning and thinking and asking questions. But assuming that you believe all those things in your mind, here are some good indicators, some questions to ask yourself. Do you find yourself warm to him? You know, when all the distractions are put to one side, is there warmth in your heart towards him? Do you want to know him more, love him more, follow him more? Even if you feel like you're currently weak in some areas, do you actually want to? Bruce put it this way last week, do you marvel at him? I mean sunsets and mountains and the perfect barreling wave are marvellous things. But when you think about Jesus and what he has done for you, is that the thing you really marvel at? Or to look at it from a reverse angle, does it pain you when his name is maligned? Either by those who are hostile towards him or even worse because of the terrible conduct of his so-called representatives, his so-called followers, other Christians whose bad behavior puts a stain on his name. Does that pain you? Another question you can ask yourself is, is there a humility when you read his word? And, and by that, I, I mean at least the whole New Testament, not just the red letter bits, because it was all authored by Christ through his apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. 
You see, what you could do is you could sift through his word. I like the bits that I like, and the bits that I don't like, I'm just going to dismiss. Effectively, that means you're sitting in judgment upon his word. Or do you do the reverse, where you humbly let his word shape you? And you know that it's good for you, even when you find it very difficult to see that. Another question you can ask yourself is, do you, do you see yourself changing in response to him? Even if it's microscopically, you know, even if it's very tiny increments, is there some form of transformation in your life? Maybe you're frustrated at your slow progress, but you'd really love to follow him with all that you've got. Perhaps another question is, is serving him by serving others a pleasure and an honour even in those times when it can feel like a burden? Because that's a good indication. Do you ever make decisions that mean you miss out on advancement or enjoyment or entertainment or a purchase because you want to follow Jesus and because you want to serve other people? You see, that's another good indicator of belief. I'm sure there's lots of others, which you've really got to talk about over morning tea. And you've really got to talk about in your growth groups during the week ahead to build up a sort of a picture or a portrait of what belief actually looks like. And look, I I hope that's helpful in you determining whether you believe in Jesus, in his claims and in his work. Of course, you might do the hard work of thinking through those things, those questions, and you remain unsure. And what do you do then? You cry out, help me in my unbelief, just as one of Jesus' followers did in Mark 9. I've got a couple of suggestions for us whenever we struggle with unbelief. The first thing is to doubt our doubts. And it's very important to to understand that belief is not the absence of any doubt. Now that's good because I find myself doubting God's existence and his goodness frequently. It's very important that we understand that belief is not the absence of all doubts. Nevertheless, what we do with our doubts is very important. And I think we need to doubt our doubts. Whenever we're faced with either those sort of abstract theological doubts or, on the other hand, those sort of really intense doubts that emerge from personal pain and suffering, we need to doubt our doubts. Uh, for example, those theological ones, we, we're not sure that God really exists. This is what we could do. We could consider it more reasonable that our worlds and ourselves were created by someone for something rather than us being here for no reason, having been created by no one and going nowhere. Is that, actually, it's an unreasonable thing to believe. As smart as you are, and I know you're smart, I guarantee you that you are not the first person to have had any particular theological doubt or question. You're not the first. I can also guarantee you that plenty of other smart people have provided more than reasonable answers to your question. You see, we've got to doubt our doubts. If um, our doubts are more of those really intense personal ones, and we doubt God's goodness in the midst of suffering, we might just need to acknowledge we can't see the entire picture here. It's very confusing and troubling, but we cannot see it all. And perhaps God is bringing his good purposes to bear upon this situation, even despite appearances, because I can't see it all. And the alternative, that he neither exists or that he doesn't care, simply doesn't stack up when we remember that he loved us enough to send his own son 
to suffer and die for our sakes. That's not an indication of a lack of presence or a lack of care. When you think about it, oftentimes our doubts require more faith than faith itself. It's worth remembering that. In addition to doubting our doubts, we also need to fuel our faith. Fuel our faith. We doubt our doubts, we fuel our faith. I wish I came up with that. <laughs> Lots of ways to do this, you know, reading good books, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, or listening to podcasts, that's what we modern people do these days. <laughs> Can't read, it's too hard. My brain hurts. Uh, here's the usual way that God ministers to us. It's ordinary, in a way. It's through prayer. It's through his scriptures. And it's through the fellowship of his people in the power of his spirit. They seem kind of ordinary, don't they? Yet in times of doubt, many Christians do the opposite thing of what they should do. They fuel their doubts. They listen to all sorts of odd voices. And then they stop praying. They stop reading their Bible. They stop meeting for fellowship at church, which are the very ways that God normally ministers to us. Again, friends, there is more to talk about there in your growth groups in the week ahead. But I really think doubting your doubts and fueling your faith will make a big difference at ground level to help you in your unbelief, which we will all experience at some point in time. Well, we need to finish. So at the end of this first half of John's Gospel, magnificent book, Jesus cries out to us, pleading with us to believe in him. We might struggle to define it. We might struggle to know if we do believe. We might struggle with unbelief. But today I want to encourage you, he can bear the weight of all that we bring. Our past, present, future circumstances. Our past, present, future shortcomings. He can bear the weight. He's worthy of our devotion and he compels our belief. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, God, I do want to thank you for the Lord Jesus and John's gospel which testifies so powerfully to him. Many of us would cry out, help us with our unbelief. In those scenarios, help us to doubt our doubts and fuel our faith. Uh, Lord, we, we want to have soft and humble hearts that realize belief in him is it's about more than just head knowledge. It's more than just admiration. And that he's truly worthy of the weight of all of our circumstances and all of our shortcomings. Lord, help us to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.